Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Genesis. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 19. Together we'll be reading verses 24 to 29. Genesis chapter 19, starting at verse 24. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Our Father in heaven, you know and we know that Genesis 19 is one of the most difficult chapters, one of the darkest chapters in your revelation that you have given to us. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would assist us in our hearts and minds to move beyond the shock of what we read here to see ourselves in this text, and not only to see ourselves here, but to see the light of redemption that shines out of Genesis 19, and to see how great is the redemption that you have given in your Son, Jesus Christ. These are the things I pray and ask for your help uh, for everyone sitting here in the sound of my voice, but also, Lord, for me, that you would take me firmly out of the way and that your Spirit would be the one who is speaking. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. When I was in my teens and early 20s and focused on learning jazz drums, uh, the three guys there that you see on the screen were really my top three favorite drummers. That's Tony Williams on the upper left, Elvin Jones on the upper right, and then Jack DeJeanette on the bottom there in case you're keeping track. But I spent, I would have to say, I spent many, many, many hours not only listening repeatedly to the records, every record I could get my hands on that these guys played on, but also transcribing their stuff. So taking a a piece of musical staff paper and writing out the patterns that I heard on the records and then sitting down, of course, at the drum set and trying to learn it at a very slow pace at first. The musical ideas and the style and the approach to the drums that each of these guys had rubbed off on me and my own playing because I spent so much time with them, not personally with them, but listening to them and learning from them. The point I'm trying to make here as we begin is simply this, that what we expose ourselves to ends up influencing us. It rubs off on us for good or for ill. 
Abraham's nephew Lot had moved to the town of Sodom, and he had been living there for a while, and Sodom had seeped into Lot. The ways of Sodom, the values of Sodom, the mentality of the Sodomites had had their influence on Lot, and we see this influence show up in a number of ways in Genesis 19, which is our preaching text this morning. Among other things, friends, Genesis 19 is a sober reminder to us that the culture in which we live can influence us in negative ways that we may not even be aware of. Now, in the story of Abraham, we've already run across foreboding verses concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. For instance, in Genesis 13.10, and again, as always, I hope you have a Bible open. In Genesis 13.10, right after Lot had chosen to go toward Sodom, when Abraham had given him first choice in the matter of land, we have the little notice in that verse that says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So that already there in Genesis 13.10, we were told that Sodom and Gomorrah were living on borrowed time. And then just three verses later at 13.13, we have the little notice there that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. More foreboding information there concerning Sodom. And then, of course, last week when we looked at Genesis chapter 18, we heard God talking there about the outcry that had come into his ears concerning the injustice and the violence of Sodom and Gomorrah and how he was getting set to deal with that wickedness. In Genesis 19, we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God executes judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But before we get there, we are first given, in the text, we are given an illustration on the ground of the great wickedness in Sodom that we already heard about in those earlier verses of Genesis. So let's go to the text now. And let's walk carefully through the corridors of this text together. Verse 1 tells us that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. These two angels were two of the three men who we remember had eaten at Abraham's table in Genesis 18. They arrive in Sodom in the evening, and Abraham's nephew Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. What we notice is that Lot has gone from living in a tent near Sodom in Genesis 13:12 now to living in the city and presiding perhaps as some sort of city alderman now sitting at the city gate where such officials normally sat. So that it appears as though Lot has now integrated fully into Sodom. He's become a leader of some kind in the city. 
When Lot saw the two men, the two angels in human form, Lot rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. Verse 3, but he, Lot, pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, there are a few things for us to contemplate here in verses 2 and 3. First of all, Part of what is described here in these verses is the hospitality of Lot. Lot insists on having the two strangers come to his house to eat and to sleep the night. And Lot makes them some food and they eat. In this ancient Near Eastern culture that the story takes place in, hospitality to strangers was massively important. When the strangers had come into Sodom, they would not have seen any Holiday Inn or Hampton Inn or St. Hubert. In this ancient culture, with its lack of hotels and its lack of restaurants and amenities, it was normal and it was expected of you to take in strangers, to give them food and give them shelter in your home. So Lot here is simply doing what you did in this culture. But even still, we notice some things in these verses that give us pause. For example, we notice that Lot seems, and I hope you notice this, he seems nervous about about the fact that these strangers are here visiting Sodom. He seems nervous. He sees the strangers in the town and he goes right over to them and he asks them to come to his house for food and shelter. And when they initially refuse Lot's offer, saying that they'll just simply stay in the town square for the night in verse 3, Lot then presses them. Did you notice that? Presses them strongly. In another English version, it's translated Lot urge them greatly, or he insisted strongly. Now, a question we can ask here, why this vigorous insistence on the part of Lot that the strangers not stay in the town square? And why does Lot suggest that the strangers be on their way so early the next day? As Dale Ralph Davis has asked, Why was Lot so eager for them to be on their way? Why the rush? Why not a tour of the city and the sights the next day? And friends, the answer has to be, Lot wants to protect them in his house and then scoot them off out of town early the next day because Lot knows what normally happens to strangers who come wandering into Sodom, and it ain't pretty, as we will find out shortly in the narrative. So this is hospitality on the part of Lot, yes, but it's nervous hospitality. 
And then the last thing I want us to see in verses 2 and 3 is that we are invited, aren't we? We're invited in in these verses to make comparisons between Abraham showing hospitality to the strangers in Genesis 18 and Lot showing hospitality to the strangers here in Genesis 19, one chapter later. How does Lot fare in comparison to Abraham? Well, where Abraham's visitors had accepted Abraham's hospitality immediately, they don't accept Lot's hospitality immediately. With Lot, the strangers hesitate at first until Lot presses them and then they accept. Might this be a subtle suggestion in the text that Abraham's relationship to the visitors, his relationship to God, in other words, is a closer relationship than Lot's is. Perhaps. Secondly, where Abraham's meal prep had included the help of Sarah and the help of another young servant, Sushef, and where Abraham's meal had been described, hadn't it, in lavish detail in Genesis 18, a calf, Curds, milk, cakes prepared passionately and prepared with some haste. Lot's meal for his visitors here in Genesis 19 is described in much more subdued terms. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. It's almost as if if Abraham's meal was catered by the keg, Lot's meal comes from the drive-thru at McDonald's. So the hospitality in Genesis 18 and 19, we need to notice, has gone, so far it's gone from exemplary in Abraham to adequate in Lot. Let's keep going. Verse 4. They finished their meal. Now they're inside Lot's house. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. Now, friends, notice very carefully that this verse, to quote Dale Ralph Davis again, this verse falls all over itself to emphasize and to underscore that the whole male population of Sodom was now surrounding Lot's house. In Genesis 18, God and Abraham had stopped at the number 10, hadn't they? If there were only 10 righteous in Sodom, God would spare the city. But here, verse 4 of chapter 19 makes the possibility of finding ten righteous people in Sodom a very difficult task. All the male population are surrounding Lot's house, and they are about to press for something that is very unrighteous. Verse 5, the men call to Lot, and they say, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us, bring them out to us, that we may know them. Now here's what needs to be said about verse 5. And 
Listener discretion is advised. What the men of Sodom are suggesting here is to engage in the coercive, homosexual gang rape of the two visitors who are in Lot's house. Coercive, homosexual gang rape. Now, by any standard, by any standard, such a suggestion is egregious, it is horrific, it is savage, and it is wicked. When these men say that they want to know the visitors who are in Lot's house, there is little doubt that what they are talking about is sexual knowing. After all, the word know, K-N-O-W, is used in the Hebrew Bible in several places to describe sexual acts, like Genesis 4, verse 1, when Adam knew Eve and Eve conceived, or like Genesis 4, 17, where Cain knew his wife and she conceived, or like Numbers 31.17, where knowing a man is described as lying with him. This gang of men of Sodom want to know the visitors. As a group, they desire to coercively attack Lot's visitors in a sexual way. So again, the question... Why had Lot been so nervous, wanting to shelter these visitors and then send them away early the next day under the radar, if he could possibly do that? I think we have our answer now. Apparently, what the men are demanding here was already a vile sort of custom in the town of Sodom. And friends, again, in the text of Scripture, this serves as an illustration and a barometer of where Sodom was at. This is an illustration of their wickedness. It's an illustration of why the outcry had come into the ears of God. But the wickedness of Sodom, according to the rest of the Bible, further included a whole bunch of things. It included pride, their wickedness did. It included haughtiness. It included the the withholding of help for the needy. The wickedness of Sodom included gross idolatry and all the rest of it that we already mentioned last Sunday. So notice the downward progression in Genesis 18 and 19. We've gone from the exemplary hospitality of Abraham to the adequate hospitality of Lot and now to the dismal, horrific hospitality on the part of the men of Sodom. Verses 6 and 7. Lot went out to the men at the entrance of his house, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now if there was any possibility in verse 5 that the men wanting to No, Lot's visitors just meant that they wanted to get acquainted with the visitors on a friendly basis. That possibility now vanishes as Lot calls the suggestion of the men wicked. Here in verse 7, do not act so wickedly. 
Now the problem with what Lot says in verse 7 is that he calls the men of Sodom brothers. My brothers, do not act so wickedly. As if Lot shared some sort of kinship with these guys. And perhaps this is a sign of the influence of Sodom on Lot. He calls these men, these wicked men, brothers. But the vile influence of Sodom on the man Lot shows up gangbusters now in verse 8. Listen to what Lot says to these men now. He says to the men, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Again, no in the sexual sense. They had not known any man. Lot says, Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot here is offering his own daughters for the sexual gratification of the mob. Simply put, friends, and I know you will agree with me, this is a thoroughly disgusting, unconscionable, shameful, totally immoral, depraved offer on the part of Lot. What we see here in verse 8 is that Sodom had seeped into Lot. Sodom had corrupted Lot. Your surroundings can stain you, and Lot is stained. Lot could have offered himself to the mob in the hope of protecting his guests and his family, but Lot offers his own daughters. There's no way around it. This should unsettle us when we read this verse. Verse 9. The men of Sodom said, Stand back! And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Now remember last week, friends, in Genesis 18, how God had been the one to raise the issue of justice. Remember that? Genesis 18, 19. And then Abraham had ended up exploring the shape of the justice of God toward the end of that chapter. Well, now the men of Sodom raised the issue of justice and judges here in 19.9. They question Lot's right to judge them. It's very contemporary, isn't it? And in their way of thinking, Lot is in no position to judge their intentions, and neither is God for that matter. These men will be a law unto themselves. And when they're threatening here to make, to, to deal with Lot even worse, as they say, what they're threatening is to make Lot the object of their sexual violence. They press into Lot and they get set to break down his door. Now, when the waters of the flood were rising around Noah's ark, the Lord shut Noah in to the ark, according to Genesis 7.16. Genesis 7, now, in Genesis 19.10, 
when the men are threatening Lot's life and the life of the visitors, God shuts Lot in to his house. But the men, the two angel visitors who were in human form, those men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Lot had sought to deliver his visitors from the mob. Now the visitors deliver Lot from the mob. Verse 11, And the angels struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So the angels save Lot from the mob, and now the angels execute the initial stage of judgment on the mob. What's being described here in the original Hebrew is a blinding light, a dazzling brightness that the angels inflict on the crazed mob. Verses 12 and 13. Notice now the urgency in the tone of the two angels. This this picks up speed now. They say to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to shahat in Hebrew. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before Yahweh, the Lord, And Yahweh has sent us to shahat it, to destroy it. The verb shahat, destroy, is the same verb that had been used in the story of Noah and the flood when God destroyed, shahatted, the world by the flood. Now he will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with sulfurous fire. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his soon-to-be sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now notice that last part very carefully. The men who were soon going to marry Lot's daughters thought Lot was joking when he warned them to flee the city. It could be that these future sons-in-law of Lot just couldn't take Lot seriously anymore. After all, Lot had just offered up their future wives as disposable assets to the crazed mob of Sodom. But we see here in any case, don't we, that Lot's influence is lacking, even in his own family. It's a contrast from Abraham as he tries to persuade God in Genesis 18. Lot can't even influence his own family. Verse 15 Note again the urgency in the angel's tone here. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, But he, Lot, lingered. He lingered. He dawdled. 
He hesitated. It's not altogether easy for Lot to leave this wicked place that had so influenced him. Are you hearing me this morning? There was a sense of security in the familiar, and he hesitated to leave it. Lot had urged his future sons-in-law to get out now in verse 14, but now he himself, he wants to delay and gather a few more boxes, a few more keepsakes before he heads out of town. He lingered. My friends, a question the text is asking us is this. Does our love for the world cause us to linger and hesitate when the urgent call of God comes into our lives? He lingered. So the men seized him. Notice. They seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Don't miss that. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Here in the latter part of verse 16, we have the reason now that Lot is saved from Sodom. The reason that Lot is saved from Sodom has nothing to do with Lot himself. The reason that Lot is saved from Sodom is, notice carefully, the mercy of the Lord. Amen? The Lord being merciful to him, he is brought by the hand of the Lord safely outside the city that is about to be decimated by divine judgment. The reason that you and I are saved from the coming judgment of God, if we are saved, is not due to anything in us. We are sinners. We are dawdlers, hesitators, like Lot, who in our sinfulness prefer the evil city, like Lot. The reason any of us are saved is also because of the mercy and the compassion of God 100%. Verse 17. And as they brought them out, one angel said, notice the urgency now, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And then we get these weird verses. Verses 18 through 23 where, can you believe it, Lot tries to negotiate about the escape route. (laughs) The angels are rescuing Lot from catastrophe, and now he wants to bargain or haggle over the escape route. Notice this. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. Lot, you're wasting precious time with this speech. Middle of verse 19. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now, God had sent two angels to protect Lot and to bring Lot to safety, but Lot doesn't trust the protection of God. He still thinks he may die. Verse 20, 
Lot's still speaking. Behold, this, this city over here. You see, you see this city? This city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little city. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Lot is asking to go to a little city that was located outside of the larger city of Sodom. Verse 21, one of the angels said to Lot, now notice the amazing grace here in the angel's words. The angel says, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means, can you guess what it means? It means Little. Lot said, is this not a little city? This is a little city. I want to escape. Zoar means little. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Notice that sunrise. Morning is when the judgment comes. And it comes at last in verse 24. Then the Lord, Yahweh, reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, Sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, friends, we need to see here in verse 24 that there is a means by which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Namely, the means are sulfur and fire. And there is a cause of that destruction, namely Yahweh. The verse is emphatic that God was the cause of this destruction, but that God used sulfur and fire. Perhaps a volcano is being described, or perhaps, as some have suggested, an earthquake that released the sulfurous gases and bitumen that were in the area, and they were ignited by lightning. The destruction, says verse 24, note very carefully, came from the Lord out of heaven. Now, just a chapter ago, just a chapter ago in chapter 18, God had been present on earth, had he not, enjoying a meal at Abraham's table. Now, suddenly God is in his control room in heaven, and he's raining down destruction on this place that had been overtaken by human depravity. Verses 25 and 26. And he overthrew or overturned or destroyed those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground because human sin is always connected in some way in Scripture to ecology. But Lot's wife behind him looked back in flagrant violation of the angel's command in verse 17 to not look back. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Did Lot's wife look back longingly on that city? Perhaps. Whatever the case, she is overtaken by sulfurous fallout, by chemical fire, And her own chemistry is fatally altered. She becomes a pillar of salt. Now, Genesis 19 is the only chapter in the story of Abraham where Abraham appears but remains silent. 
It's the only chapter in the Abraham story where this happens. Abraham appears in verse 27 now, but Abraham is speechless. Notice this. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Yes, when Abraham had been questioning God about God's justice in Genesis 18. Now he's there again. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So Abraham is standing there and he is seeing the after effects of the justice of God. Sodom and Gomorrah are a smoking wasteland now. And Abraham is speechless. He says nothing. I can imagine him here looking down at that smoke with the question playing over and over again in his mind, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 29 So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. He remembered Abraham, and notice what's connected to that, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Why was Lot, who had imbibed the spirit of Sodom, saved from Sodom? Why was he saved from Sodom? He was saved because of God's mercy, Verse 16, and he was saved because God remembered Abraham. Verse 29, Abraham who had interceded with God about Sodom. So again, Lot's salvation has nothing to do with Lot. Now for the sake of time this morning, I just want to summarize verses 30 through 38 at the end of the chapter instead of having us walk through each verse as we have been. So here's a summary. In verses 30 through 38, Lot ends up living in a cave with his two daughters. The man who had once been rich, the man who had once chosen a dwelling that had resembled the Garden of Eden, this man ends up living in a dark cave with his two daughters. Lot's story is a real riches-to-rags story. And it's in that cave where Lot lives that his two daughters scheme to get Lot rip-roaring drunk on wine. And they do that. And then they sleep with their inebriated father. And they each get pregnant by him. I told you this was a dark chapter. So just as the salvation story of Noah had ended up in drunken debauchery after the saving moment, so does the story of Lot. Lot's daughters want to continue the family line after the destruction of the cities. There were no men around except for their father, and so they do this ugly thing. Lot's daughters had lived in Sodom with Lot. Clearly, they too had been influenced by Sodom's mentality and its lack of morality. So in this cave is Sodom rebirthed. And watch this, because this is an important thing that the narrator of Genesis is doing. The situation of Lot, drunk in the cave, used for sexual purposes by his daughters without his consent, His situation is very similar to the situation that he had suggested for his daughters. 
is it not? Lot had offered his daughters to be used for sexual purposes without their consent. Now he is used for sexual purposes without his consent. So what goes around comes around for Lot at the end of Genesis 19. The two sons who are born by this incestuous union are named Moab, which means from father, and Ben-Ami, which means something like son of my father's people. And Moab and Ben-Ami are the fathers of the Moabite and the Ammonite people groups. Now, Having talked through the whole of Genesis 19, some of us might be feeling a little depressed. There is no escaping the fact that this is a dark and disturbing chapter of the Bible for all sorts of reasons. We wonder, when we get to the end of Genesis 19, where's the light? Where's the trajectory of hope, gospel hope? in this chapter? My answer to that question is, there is a little ray of hope that shines out brightly in verse 37 of this chapter. Look at verse 37 with me. The incestuous union of Lot and one of his daughters produces the Moabites, ultimately, And one of the most famous Moabites in all the Bible is the lady Ruth. Ruth from Moab, who is the great-grandmother of David. And Jesus descends in the lineage of David. So that you can trace a line all the way from that awful incident in the cave with Lot and his daughters. You can trace a line from there to the coming of Jesus, Savior of the world. That's the trajectory of hope in Genesis 19. Out of this horrific, depraved family episode in Genesis 19, God brings greatness and blessing to the world in Jesus. Jesus comes along, and one of the things he does is he teaches people in parables. One of the parables that Jesus gives is called the parable of the tenants, found in Matthew 21. In that parable, Jesus talks about how the inhabitants of Jerusalem had had a long history of treating the servants whom God had sent into their midst with violence and with death. And Jesus says in that parable, in effect, he says, Now I'm here in Jerusalem, God's son, and the same thing will happen to me. You people in Jerusalem will end up killing the one whom God has sent, his own son. Well, in Genesis 19... God had sent his messengers into Sodom, and the people of Sodom had desired to do violence to the messengers. 
In the case of the two messengers in Genesis 19, they escaped the city and they weren't touched by the mob. But Jesus, God's final messenger, did not escape the city with his life. The people killed him. Jesus was crucified in the environs of Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, friends, Revelation 11.8 says that Jesus was crucified in what is symbolically called Sodom. The crazed mob of sinners in Jerusalem were like the Sodomites. They were utterly inhospitable to God the Son. And they laid their hands on him and they nailed him to a cross. Jesus was crucified in what is symbolically called Sodom, according to Revelation 11.8. The two angels of Genesis 19 sought to get Lot and his family out of Sodom before God's judgment rained down. And they succeeded in saving three people that day. Jesus is better than the two angels. Amen. Jesus stays in Sodom. And in his death at the hands of the crazed mob, what Jesus does is he absorbs, he absorbs the wickedness of people in his own body. On the cross, Jesus himself takes the wrath of God that was coming on that wickedness, and countless hosts from every tribe, nation, and tongue are saved because of Jesus the sin-bearer and Jesus the wrath-taker. How are you and I saved from God's wrath? We are saved in the same fashion that Lot was saved, not because of any righteousness in us. We are all inconsistent sinners like Lot. I hope you have seen yourself in Lot today, otherwise the joke's on you. Like Lot, you and I can be righteous and pious one minute and uncommitted morally the next minute. Like Lot, you and I are no doubt compromised by a godless culture in ways that we may not even recognize. Like Lot, you and I may prefer to linger in this world if God came today and urgently called us out of this world. We are not saved because of anything good in us. We are saved, rather, like Lot was, only because of God's mercy. God's mercy that manifests itself supremely and manifests itself for all time in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to take us to one last place in the New Testament before we end this today, and that's to Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. And this is for our guests today who are not in a vital and living relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to listen carefully. So in these verses, Jesus talks about the failure of certain cities to repent, to turn to God during his time. Even even those cities 
that he, he had lived in, he had, he had worked in. Those cities had had front row seats where they had witnessed the mighty works that Jesus had performed. In verses 20 through 22 of Matthew 11, Jesus focuses on the failure in this regard of towns called Chorazin and Bethsaida. But I want us to notice where Jesus goes beginning at verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus turns his attention to the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, had been the main center of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Capernaum, more than Bethsaida and Chorazin, had had opportunity to see Jesus Christ at work. And they had ample opportunity to respond to Jesus, to repent because of the presence of Jesus there with them. But they had not. Jesus asked them a rhetorical question. To which the answer is a firm no. Jesus says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. Jesus says, you will be brought down to Hades. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And then listen to what he says next. He says, Listen to the word of God, to the word of Jesus. He says, for if the, listen to the word of Jesus. For if the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, had been done where? In Sodom. It, Sodom, would have remained until this day. That is, even Sodom would have repented of their vile wickedness if they had had opportunity to witness the mighty works of Jesus Christ, Capernaum, that you have witnessed. And then Jesus closes in verse 24 by saying this, But I tell you that it will be more tolerable, more tolerable, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom, there is still a judgment coming for Sodom, It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that to reject Jesus as Capernaum had, to not repent despite the presence of Jesus with you, to to reject the forgiveness that has been brought in Jesus Christ. This is a folly that at the last judgment, God will punish more severely than he'll punish the immorality of Sodom. And every person within the sound of my voice today stands in the shoes of Capernaum. We stand at a crossroads of either repenting and receiving Jesus hospitably, to know his love and to know his presence eternally. We stand either there or rejecting him and facing what Jesus describes in Luke 17, verses 29 and 30, as a destructive judgment that will be like the judgment that came on Sodom. Those are your two choices. And so I beg you this morning, 
to consider the advantage you have in 2018 over the people of Capernaum and over the people of Sodom. You and I have so much more than any of those people ever had. Today we have an entire Bible with 66 books of God's revelation. We have this complete divine revelation of Jesus Christ that God has given us. We have churches that worship Jesus on every corner. And yet, the tragedy and the horror is that some have been sitting in churches. Some have been sitting in Sunday services for 40 years or more. And though they may talk good church talk, they have never actually repented or had a saving experience and been born again. Now, if that's you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I plead with you this morning, if you're one of of those people, now is the time of salvation. Repent of your sin. Receive the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Be washed in his atoning blood. Escape for your life. Do not look back. Escape to Jesus, your refuge, lest you be swept away. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a chapter of Scripture that some of us would, frankly, would have preferred to avoid. But it's part of your inspired word. It has authority. It is inerrant. It is inspired. And Lord, for your purposes, for your Holy Spirit's reasons, you desired that it be preached in this place today. And so, Father, I'm praying that fruit would be borne by your Holy Spirit through this time that we have spent in your word, that someone would come once and for all to your bosom to be saved, to be born again, to receive your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would tremble under this word this week as we live and work and move in the, in the world. And, Father, May we be beacons of the hope of Jesus Christ and messengers not avoiding the fact that there is a judgment coming, Lord. I pray that we would find ways to integrate that into the message that we give to others when we talk to them about Jesus. Father, do with this as you will now. We trust that you will in Jesus' name. Amen.